Well, grab your Bible with me this morning, and uh, we're going to jump into the Word this morning. We've been in this series for a while now, and it will carry us through the rest of the year, called Do I Trust God? And we're heading to Easter, and so uh, I want to ask us some questions this morning and talk about trusting God in Jesus' death. Sometimes you may wonder as you ponder about who God is and what Jesus has done and the idea of the cross and the resurrection, it might come to your mind at some point, how can a horrible tragedy bring us everything good? Or how could, how could killing the perfect one, Jesus Christ, bring me hope and joy and love? Well, this morning I want to talk about what we learn about God through Jesus' death. Because as you look at the cross and the resurrection, there's a lot of things that you can learn about who God is, about his character, about what he thinks, about how he views you. And we, we discover what Jesus' death is communicating to us, but to all of humanity. Because Easter is really the story of God the Father sending his son to die for you and me. And so as we discover what it means to trust God, we want to talk about this important subject as well. Because I want to talk about this because it requires us to trust God in a very deep way. When you think about him sending his son to die, or you think about Jesus making a decision to die for us, that, that requires some trust on our part to figure that out and to learn about it and understand it. Because Jesus' death and resurrection is the reason that we see the love of God in our lives. So why we understand what God does and who he is and how he looks at you and me is really important. And the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ helps us with that. Now today, we're about three weeks away on our, what we would call our calendar from Easter. From celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want to explore some things about Jesus' death and, and what that means to us. And there are several scriptures in the New Testament, actually there's lots of scriptures in the New Testament, that help us understand and communicate the importance of Jesus' death in our lives. And those things are really, really important. And what I hope to show you this morning, what I hope that you will hear and that you will see God's word communicating is that you are deeply loved by God. Deeply loved by God. Now, trusting in Jesus' death, I, I think it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. Because what Jesus did is he reconciled everything. He reconciled everything for you and me in this broken world. It pays the price for our failures, uh, for our sin. It ushers in the life that every human soul needs right now and then eternally. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus is nothing short of the greatest miracle we've ever seen. And we learn several things about God through Jesus' death. And these things help us trust him more. We get to look into the heart of God a little bit and discover what he was doing and why he was asking Jesus to come and die on the cross for us. And I think there's three sections of scripture that I'd like us to ponder, even though we could probably look at about 50. I thought I could probably do about three in 30 minutes. Does that sound about right? Now, it'd be fun to do all 50, but we'd be here till tomorrow morning, and probably some of you have something else to do. 
And then the second service, people would be like, what's going on in there? Are we supposed to go in or what? So we'll just do three. So the first one is in John chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 15. And in John chapter 15, there's some really great things happening. And John chapter 15 is actually kind of the middle of a discourse by Jesus with his disciples and uh, just hanging out with them. But in John chapter 15, what we discover and what Jesus' death communicates is that you are a friend of God. You are God's friend. And I want us to look at this because it's really important. In John chapter 12, Jesus begins to talk with his disciples about his death. And of course, like, like the disciples and like we would have done if we were alive and hanging out with Jesus, they were really confused. Like they didn't understand what was going on. It was hard to wrap their mind around the idea that the Messiah would die. That wasn't part of their ideology or their thinking. And we're actually going to talk about that next week. So I'm going to leave that right there hanging for you. Okay. Um, but the disciples begin to probably wonder and question and ponder all of this that Jesus is beginning to say as he talks about that in chapter 12. And then in chapter 18, we see that Jesus is arrested and Judas betrays him and Jesus heads to the cross. But in John chapter 13 to John chapter 18, it reads like a big, long conversation. Whether or not that conversation all happened at once or that conversation happened in multiple places and multiple times with the disciples, which is probably more uh, prominent and common, we don't know. But the way John lays it out and the way it reads, it reads like a big, long conversation that you and I might have with Jesus. And he talks about lots of things from chapter 13 to chapter 18. He talks about serving one another. He predicts his betrayal by Judas and Peter. He talks about how he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to heaven except through him. He talked about the Holy Spirit and how important the Holy Spirit would be in the life of every single believer. He talked about how the world would hate Christians. He discussed the importance of living closely connected to Jesus. And then lastly, he prayed for his disciples his present disciples, and his future disciples. And all of that is like this long conversation. And in the middle of this conversation, in the middle of this teaching, Jesus shares this short verse about his death in John 15, 13. And this is all he says. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, what Jesus did here is he kind of he divulged a big secret to his disciples. And that is that I don't only see you as my disciples or my servants, but you're my friend. Now, that's, that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And let me tell you why. A servant is someone who works for you. So they punch the time card. They're not your friend. They just work for you. 
A disciple is someone who's following you, maybe out of conviction, maybe because they feel like you have the answers, but there's, it's a religious connection. It's a spiritual connection, and it might not have gone yet to friend. Hopefully it does at some point, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. But Jesus says, I call you friends. And what Jesus is saying is, you and I, we're in relationship together. We're in a relationship. And as friends, we hang out together, we play together, we work together, we do life together. This is what Jesus intended. This is why Jesus came. This is why he went to the cross. This is why he rose again. Not so that we could just have some sort of superficial relationship on some sort of servanthood level, but so that we would have a very strong relationship where we're choosing to be in his life and he's choosing to be in our life. That's a friend. On your own volition, you say, I choose you. And that's what we do with our friends, right? Friends aren't, friends aren't like family. You have to be in your family, whether you like it or not. You're stuck with your brothers and sisters, your mom and dad, crazy Uncle Eddie, right? You can't get out of that. But you get to choose your friends. You get to choose who you want to do life with. And that's what Jesus is saying. I hope you'll choose me because I chose you. And that's exactly what Jesus says as he goes on. In verse 14, he says, You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Now here's what's great. Jesus says to his disciples, and whether it was all 12 here or 50 or 500 or he's talking to a couple thousand, we don't know, but let's just talk about the 12 for a minute. What does this communicate about God? If we're looking at the 12 disciples, it communicates this, that God chooses tax collectors, the lowliest of the lowly, those who have betrayed everyone and have betrayed all of their friends, Jesus says, I want you to be my friend. I choose you. He chose a bunch of smelly fishermen. <laughs> and they're kind of at the bottom of the chain too. And then on and on, we could look at each person. He chose a doubter. <laughs> Someone who would consistently go, I'm just not sure if I'm all in with you. Oh, it's all right. I want to be your friend. And then think about it with me just for a minute. He chose someone that he knew would turn him in. And he chose him on purpose. Don't raise your hand, but anybody, anybody feel with one of those? <laughs> Smelly. Betrayed my friends. This is humanity. And Jesus says, I choose you. If you've trusted Jesus and he's your savior, then you're a friend of God. And that's a pretty profound statement. 
Now, here's what I find extraordinary about this, this idea, this topic. There's no incentive for God to choose me as his friend. I mean, there's, think about it. There's no incentive for God to choose us as his friend. I can't counsel him. I can't give him a ride to the mechanic. I can't help him move. I can't sit and listen to his problems. I can't even cook him ribs. I know nothing, absolutely nothing, about how to keep a solar system in sync. Do you? How about a billion solar systems in sync? I know nothing about that. And God says, I want to be your friend. Can you imagine what it must be like? I don't. I can't fathom this. I, I couldn't help God with the millions of prayers that are lifted every day, and he has to make a decision about which one to answer and why. See, I think, that's just how I think about it, this is kind of a raw deal for God. Like, I'm not a very good friend, <laughs> but he loves me nonetheless. Now, what does that tell me about God? What does that communicate to me? It says that he just likes me for me, and he likes you for you. He's not in relationship with us for his benefit. You ever thought of that? There's no benefit for him. He's not in relationship with you for his benefit. He's in relationship with you because he wants to be your friend for your benefit. For you. He wants to be your friend. And in fact, verse 16 says, not only does he want to be your friend, but he chose you. That's good news. It's good news that he chose you. That he likes you enough to choose you. That he knows everything about you and he still says, I want you in my life. He knows you have nothing to offer him. And he chooses you. This is kind of like, uh, go back to elementary school for a minute. I, I don't know what you did on the playground. But because I was a sports guy, everything I did, you know, as soon as I went out on the playground, I was grabbing a ball or a basketball or a football or something. And then we went out and we had the ominous moment of picking teams. I hated that. Actually, I didn't mind then because I was, I was a good athlete in fifth grade. So I always was picked first or second. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But I, I often thought, whenever I was the team captain, I often thought, I'm going to do this in the reverse way. I'm going to pick the guy who's not very good and just make him feel good today. So I'd work from the bottom up. And um, we never won, by the way, just in case you're wondering, like, did that ever work out? No, never worked out. But I began to think about how God is and how he works and how he operates. And it just reminds me that if, you, if I was the last kid on the playground looking for a team, he'd choose me. That's what God's doing, because he's a friend. And then verse 16 and 17 goes on to say that God's friends can do something in response to being chosen as a friend of God. That what, what are some things that we can do in response to being God's friend? There's two things. We can bear fruit that will last, and we can love each other. Bear fruit that will last, and love each other. Say, well, Pastor Mark, I'm going to need help with the bear fruit that will last one, because... Uh, bananas are only good for bread after you've left them out on the counter for a week. So what are you talking about? Well, John's talking about a different kind of fruit, isn't he? Now, he's using an illustration. It's a correlation. It's that 
uh, uh, an apple tree bears apples and a banana tree bears bananas and an orange tree, you get oranges. We get the idea. The idea is that um, when there's something that's healthy in your life and you are a healthy tree, you bear fruit. That's what happens. And what John is saying is when Jesus comes into your life and you and I become healthy people because of what Jesus does in us and because of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we become healthy people. And as a result of that, we bear fruit. Now, what is that? What, what kind of fruit do we bear? Well, the word tells us that that fruit is like things like love and joy and peace, caring for those around us having patience with difficult people, grace for the hurting, and so much more. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a friend of Jesus. And you discover more and more as you're a friend of Jesus and you hang out with him more and more, those things just naturally begin to change in your life. You begin to discover as you become more like Jesus and as you hang around with him and you want to be like him, you begin to discover this is who I want to be as well. I want to be somebody that loves well, just like Jesus did. And you begin to see everyone around you as someone that you can love, just like Jesus loved you. This is what it means to be a friend of God. Now, the next section of scripture that reveals what we can learn about God through Jesus' death is in 1 John 4. So turn to 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, um, John, by the way, talks about love constantly, like the whole, the whole letter is about love. And, and lots of other things too, but he just, I mean, he just, he loves this idea of love. But in 1 John 4, Jesus' death communicates that you are loved by God. You are loved by God. And in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now John says that it's not love that we love God. It's not really um, love that we love God. Now, why? Now, you'll discover throughout the New Testament that a lot of ways that people communicate are kind of, kind of in extremes on occasion because they're trying to make a point. Now, can you and I love God? Absolutely. That's like, we are doing that. We understand that. That's not what John's saying. He's not saying that we're incapable of loving God. What he's saying is compared to the love of God for us, there's not really a comparison. It's so different, us loving God, compared to God loving us. And so what John's really making here is a powerful statement about love. What he's saying is we can't dare to understand love in the way that a human would love God. That's not really love. In fact, there's a word for that. It's called agape love. That's the way God loves us. And there are some theologians that believe that we don't even have the capacity to love that way as humans. That we don't even have the capacity to love in such an enormously self-sacrificing way that we could love in an agape 
agape way. We can love in a phileo way, in a great friendship way, and we can love in an eros way, in a very romantic way. But when it comes to this self-sacrificing love like God had for us, there are some theologians that would say, we don't even know how to do that. We're just, we're just so narcissistic and so focused on ourselves that you, we can't even comprehend what it would be to completely give up something in such a self-sacrificing way like the cross. So what John is saying is I'm, he's making a very powerful statement about love. That love should be determined by looking at the cross. That love should be determined by looking at the self-sacrificing acts of God, not at our self-sacrificing acts towards him. Because our self-sacrificing acts towards him are kind of like no-brainers. John would say, well, duh, of course we should do that. After you look at what God's done for us, that should be the natural and honest response. But that's not why God loved us. We didn't do anything for him to have him respond in love to us. So what John is saying is we're just responding to the incredible love that God gave to us. But we don't know the first part, which is to make a decision even before creation started to love somebody that you knew wouldn't love you to begin with. That's a completely different kind of love on a completely different kind of level that God has shown to you and me. So real love, John would say, is this sacrifice that God makes for us. And Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where he said, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were saying, I don't want God in my life. I don't want you in my life. I don't want to obey you. I don't want to follow you. I don't like you. Uh, some of us would say, I don't even think you exist, but I'll get mad at you. I'll talk about how angry I am at you. How do you get mad and angry at someone that you don't believe exists? I just have often wondered that. That's the psychological part of atheism that I don't understand. Like, how do you get mad at somebody and constantly talk about someone that doesn't exist? None of us does that. That, that would be crazy talk. If, we constantly, if I constantly went around and talked about my, my, um, my secret friend, my best friend that none of you have ever seen, and you would start to wonder how crazy I am, right? I would nickname him 49er. But at some point you would say, I, I got to pick a new church because my pastor has a secret friend named 49er and it's just weird. But he talks about him all the time about how much he hates him and how much he dislikes him and that would just be odd. Here's what the cross shows. The cross of Jesus shows you and me that we are loved by God. Now John goes on to describe how love works for those who believe in him. In verse 11, he said, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. In verse 19, he said, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And what John is saying is 
We should love each other in the church. Now, one of the conclusions I came to after reading John's letter, and after you read all of the letter, you'll come to uh, a pretty fair and accurate description of what John was trying to work on, and that was the difficult challenge uh, in the church in the first century that they had of loving one another. And I couldn't help thinking, not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Because like, we still have that same challenge. This command is still a difficult one today, but it is the way that we demonstrate our love for God. Love one another. John is saying, if you want people to see your love for Jesus, then love the people in front of you first. The person that's right in front of you. Love that person first. Love your wife. Love your kids. Love the church. In John 13, 34 to 35, he said, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is huge. We are deeply loved by God, and the world will see this when we deeply love them. Love's a big deal. The next section of scripture that revealed what we can learn about God through Jesus' death is in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, um, Paul writes probably one of the best and great discourses in the New Testament about what you and I have as a result of the death of Jesus Christ. And at the end of that chapter, he, he shares some really powerful things that become a part of our life because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I noticed three powerful things that we could learn about God through Jesus' death in this section. And so I thought I would show them to you. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39, it says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The first thing I wanted us to see is that no one can condemn you. No one. Later in chapter 12, Paul's going to say it again, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No one can condemn you. This is huge. This is, this is big. Now look at what verse 34 says, because it's really, really important. He asks a rhetorical question. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one condemns you. Why? Because Jesus has paid the price for your condemnation. The price has been paid on the cross and through the resurrection. 
So your sin is forgiven. You are as white as snow. You are completely clean in Christ. But then he goes on. The way that this took place was because Christ Jesus died. So the way that this amazing blessing is a part of our life is through the death of Jesus Christ. But then he says, but more than that, he was raised to life. So not only do we have the forgiveness of Christ, but we also, through the resurrection, have the power to live in that forgiveness. The ability right now today to not live in our own condemnation. To quiet the shouting voices that tell us we are guilty. To quiet the temptation that tells us we should do something because we're just a bad person. Jesus Christ died so that you and I wouldn't have to live that way. And then the rest of the verse says something interesting. That Jesus is at the right hand of God. Now this is, this is huge. Because what, what Paul is saying is what I need you to understand about your condemnation and that you have none is that the way that this has worked itself out is that Jesus Christ now has all power in the universe. That's why he sits at God's right hand. Now this is something a little bit foreign to us. But it's, it's the idea of how authority would work in a kingdom. So in a kingdom, king and a queen, in a, in a realm, in a nation back in the first century, whoever sat in the throne room to the right of the king had ultimate authority in the kingdom. They could do anything, go anywhere, make any decision. It was almost like they were the king themselves. And so what Paul is saying is what I need you to understand about your condemnation is this, that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. In other words, all authority and all power is his. So when, when, the Satan, when Satan comes to condemn you, I want you to know something. Your best friend, the one who thinks you're a friend, the one who deeply loves you, and who has declared on the cross that no one condemns you, that ultimate power in the universe is completely behind you. So no one can condemn you. No one can lift a finger towards you because the all authority and powerful one in the entire universe is on your side. And not only is he on your side, he's your friend. And I don't know about you, but here's, here's one thing I remember from high school and from playing sports in high school and the friends that I played with. When I got in a fight, guess who was right there? My teacher. My brother. I went to high school with my brother. Did my brother ever come to a fight with me? Nope. Who came? My friends. Now, I didn't fight very often, so you don't have to. You're like, Pastor Mark fought all the time. His friend, no, that never really happened. But it's true, right? Like, when you get in a fight, who's, who's beside you, behind you, backing you up? It's your friend. They're there for you. And that's what this is saying. Jesus is saying, don't forget, I'm your friend. So when you, need, when you need help with that condemnation fight, with that fight when the enemy comes at you with guilty thoughts and trying to tempt you in different ways, I want you to know I'm right in that fight with you. I'm right there with you. And if you will call out in my name, I will deliver you. No one can condemn you. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Another thing we discover about the cross and the death and resurrection of Jesus is that we are more than conquerors. You are more than a conqueror. The death of Jesus has made you a conqueror. The cross and the resurrection have conquered your sin problem and sets you free to live for God now and in the future eternally. You are a winner. You're a conqueror. You have defeated death and sin in your life when you said yes to Jesus, when you believed in him as your Savior and as your Lord, and when you, when you said Jesus is going to be my friend, you have become more than a conqueror. You are a winner. Now here's what's interesting. In Christ, we become a conqueror and a winner now. But we also become one later. Everything you need right now in this life to conquer this world and everything in it is at your disposal through Jesus Christ. You need nothing more. But you are also a winner at the end of your life. Yesterday I got to watch some really cool basketball games. I'm a big March Madness fan. Um, and so I just love college basketball. I think it's one of the most exciting things. And um, it's, it's true in college basketball, but it's also true in every sport and all throughout life that the winner is revealed at the end, right? We don't look at the halftime score and say, okay, that, that's going to be the winner. Halftime means nothing. The winner is always revealed at the end of the game. So if you believe in Jesus and live for him, when you die, you will conquer death and be given eternal life in heaven. In the end, you win. Now you, you can win right now too, but that means you have to embrace all that Jesus has for you now. Because he's conquered everything for you now, just like he has at the end. We just have to choose to live in that identity, to live in that way. But many times we don't, right? Instead, we live as a defeated person instead of a conqueror. We, we live as a loser instead of a winner. And we need to embrace this and say, wait a second, hold on. This says I'm a conqueror in Christ. I'm not going to live as a loser anymore. I'm going to live as a winner. But that means you also have to take Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have to make him your Lord and Savior and follow him and serve him. You can't assume that because the culture or living the way that the culture thinks you're a winner now makes you a winner later. Because it doesn't. You can't get to heaven and say, well, God, man, I was really cool on earth. You should, God, you should have saw all the cool stuff I had. I mean, I had the biggest house. I had tons of money. Everybody wanted to be my friend. I had the coolest car, big boat. I mean, I was living the American dream. Uh, I just had everything. I was a winner, so I'm good, right? No. That's not what makes you a winner in heaven. It's not what makes you a conqueror in God's eyes. It's choosing Jesus. That's what makes you more 
than a conqueror. So choose him. Verse 38 says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The last thing that we notice from Romans 8 is that nothing can separate you from God's love because you are deeply loved by God. Nothing. Now, this discourse that Paul makes, he says some very interesting things. He says, I'm convinced that there are lots of things in the world that you can see, some that you can't see, but none of them can stop you from being in relationship with Jesus now, and none of them can stop the love of God that wants to be in your life and wants to be there for eternity. And he says some big things, but you have to go back and when you read the rest of the chapter, you discover that the the whole premise that he's making at the end of the chapter, the reason that nothing can separate you from God's love is because of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. What Jesus did on the cross is what makes you and I not be able to separate ourselves from God's love. And Paul says some pretty powerful things. Neither death nor life. When you and I pass away, we can't, that can't separate us from God. And life can't either, which is interesting. I thought like, well, what does he mean by that? Have any of you ever tried to live outside of God, outside his love, in this life? <laughs> that didn't separate you either, did it? Because nothing can. Neither angels nor demons. Now that's an interesting one because that takes a little bit more biblical study. But what it means is this. If you think that the physical realm that we see is the most powerful one, you're wrong. The most powerful realm is where angels and demons fight regularly for you and me and for the souls of humanity. That you and I would believe in Jesus. Even that realm can't separate us from the love of God. Neither the present nor the future. Nothing you've done in your, in your past can separate you. Nothing you're doing now can separate you. And nothing that's coming in the future will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. No power, in fact, he says, can separate us. Neither height nor depth nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In other words, you are deeply loved. And what do we learn about God through Jesus' love, through Jesus' death? We learn that we are deeply loved by God. Have you ever heard uh, the saying, hurt people hurt people? It's true. We've probably all know someone in our life that has had a tough life and they've been hurt and so they're hurting you and maybe hurting others around you. But the opposite is also true. And that is that when you are deeply loved, you will deeply love others. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus knew all along that the thing that would help humanity exist and continue and work the way it's supposed to is that you and I would love one another. 
Have patience for one another. Be kind to one another and gracious and giving. That that's the way true humanity is meant to be lived. That's the way God intended for us to live our lives. And that's why Jesus came and died for you and me. So that through that act, through that moment of Jesus on the cross, we could look at that moment and say, God really loves me. Man, I can really see that he really, really loves me. And his command to me is to love everyone around me. So as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a believer, I'm going to choose to receive Jesus' love and then I'm going to give it away. Every single day of my life, I'm going to wake up every day and choose to give away the love of God in my life. See, I believe that our world and your world can be a better place if we choose to live in Jesus' Jesus' love. See, here's what we've discovered. We've discovered that the death of Jesus can change everything. Because you are a friend of God, you are deeply loved, and nothing can separate you from God's love. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, this morning it has become evident and clear from your word about how you feel about us, that you deeply love us. But Lord, I know from my own personal experience and from just watching those around me and the world around me, that knowing something and believing something are two different things. Lord, it's possible for us to know something. I know that God loves me, but I don't live like it. And so this morning, I just want to ask us a question and let us respond to God. You may know that God loves you. It's evident in his scriptures and maybe what others have shown you by their love towards you. But for some reason, you're just having a tough time living it out yourself. And you just want to say this morning, Holy Spirit, I need help with that. That's the part I need help with. I need help understanding that completely and totally and and living it out, letting it become who I am. So if that's where you are this morning and you would just like to say, Lord, I want to respond to you this morning and I'd like to say, I need your help to live this way. I need to have the identity that I need to have in Christ and live out this love. And I want to I do more than just know it. I want to live it, and I want it to change everything in me. If that's just kind of where you're at this morning and you'd like to tell the Lord that and receive that help that he can give, would you just raise your hand let him see that?
me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. Thank you that it models and shows us the love that you have for us. It's easy for us to see that we are deeply loved when we look at the cross. I want to pray for each of these that have raised their hand that you would help them to begin to live that out. It would come out in their words and their actions and their life. It would come out in the way they respond in difficult situations and in hurtful moments. They would begin to see themselves as loved and as more than a conqueror and nothing would um, be able to separate them from your love, but also, Lord, they would live in that, that mindset. They would no longer live in an old mindset of defeated or discouraged, but they would live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Lastly, there might be someone in here that would just say, I, I want to respond to the love of God. I've never done that before. I've never even said yes to Jesus before. And I just want to say, I understand I'm deeply loved and I want to live as a child and as a friend of God for the rest of my life. But that means I got to make that first step and I need to make Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you're here this morning and you'd like to, say, like to just start a relationship with Jesus, would you raise your hand too? Lord, thanks for this morning. Thanks for showing us the important things from your word. Help us to trust you more because we've seen how much we are loved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. Good to see you. Always remember, Jesus loves you very much. So do Kate and I. Have a great week.